We're going to continue our series in countercultural convictions this morning, and our topic is the vulnerable or the poor, and specifically God's heart for the poor and vulnerable. Now, this might seem like kind of an odd topic that we put in this series, given especially what we talked about the last couple of weeks. I mean, most people can get their heads around the way in which they see, well, culture's view of things like gender and sexuality, I can see how those are counter to what the church or what Christians might think. But when it comes to caring about vulnerable or, or the poor, the culture is not really against us as a church doing that. In fact, they're probably more confused when we as a church don't engage in that. But this morning, I don't want to really talk about the culture outside the walls of the church. I want to talk about the culture inside the walls of the church. Because um, this topic, like, like all the other ones that we are encountering and all the other ones that we're talking through, it, it, it has so many facets to it. And, and there's no way that in one message I'm going to be able to kind of take every single angle on it, which is why we have additional resources. So there's podcasts, there's the Deeper Dive podcast. In fact, this week, I'm going to be doing an interview with Chris Marlowe, who's the founder of Help One Now. That's the organization that we partner with globally. Uh, so you'll be able to kind of hear our conversation on this topic. And you can find that through the app or you through our website. And I know a lot of times when we start talking about caring for the poor, what happens so often is we'll really quickly start to go to reasons or rationale and like why we don't or what we should do or what's the most responsible way, what's the best way, what's really at the root of the problem. And the Bible does talk about people who are in poverty because of their foolishness, because of their laziness, and all of those. Those are all great conversations to be had. And I, I've spent about the last seven years here in my role trying to help us as a church navigate through some of those things and figure out what is the best way for us as a church to really care for the vulnerable and the poor in our society and around the world. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of times when we start to talk about this topic, the tension is not even around what the Bible has to say about it. it the, the tension kind of rises up because we primarily don't look through a biblical lens. We have some other kind of lens that we're, that we're looking through, that we're working through. But if you, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've said yes to life in him, then your primary response to caring for the poor and the vulnerable in our world is to at least see it and look at it first primarily through a biblical lens or through the eyes of Jesus. And it's really hard in our world because what happens is we see these images like we've seen in the news so recently, um, and we will quite often build a soapbox out of a snapshot. And what we need to do is just really step back and just ask the simple question of Jesus, how do you want me to see this? And it's, it's complicated, it's polarizing, it's way too much to tackle, and it's whole comprehensive scope in just one sermon. So I am just going to have, I have one simple ask of God, one simple kind of direction that I want to take. I just want God to help us see the world, particularly the poor and the vulnerable, the way that he does, and respond accordingly. I'm asking God to just recalibrate the way that we process how we see the most vulnerable in the world first through the way that he talks about it and he sees it. And I'll, I'll be really upfront, kind of in my own experience, 
I've had God do this process in me, and I believe he's still doing this in me, because um, there was a time in my life where I would see people who were in kind of bad situations, and, and I'd look and I'd say, well, they're just not really taking their life very seriously, and that's how they kind of ended up where they are, and if they would just get a job, I mean, I've got a job, why don't they just give a job? If I give them money, who knows what they're going to do with that money? Maybe they're going to spend it on drugs, maybe they're just going to drink that money away, and you know, I'm working really hard for what I have, why don't they work really hard? And it was really easy for me to think that way um, before I read the Bible or had any real relationship with the poor and vulnerable and needs of the world. And so just, again, this morning, really simply, what I want to do is have us look at the scriptures, look at the life of God, and see God's heart for the poor and vulnerable, and just present that to you. Just present to you God's heart for the poor and vulnerable, and then you can take that, and you can go home and argue with God about that, not me, and then maybe we'll be friends next week. Um, Now, if you were to do a survey of the Bible, and we don't have time to do that completely this morning, so don't get scared, but if we did that, you'd see that the Bible does seem to be lopsided towards caring for the poor and vulnerable in the world. In the Bible, there's 200 distinct references calling for us to care for the poor. One out of roughly, one out of every 10 verses is a call for the people of God to care for the poor. So it seems to be on his mind. So we're, we're not going to do that. And at the end, we will give some practical ways that you can engage uh, the ways that churches, our, this church is already doing some things in the world. Um, but the intent is not to solve all the so what's. So I even already last hour, I had someone who's like, well, what about? And I was like, yeah, I know. It's, this is very messy. It's very complicated. This is not the intent of this message to solve all the so what's. It's just simply seeing God's heart for the poor and the vulnerable in the scripture. And the very last thing that I've, I do have to disclose um, is that this topic is extremely important to me personally. So if you were to like drill down into my marrow, like this is what you would tap into. So if you wanna use that as an excuse for why you can dismiss me in this talk and all that, then I have to own that. That's true, you can do that, because this really does, this is really like at the core and in my heart in a deep, deep way. Um, but I'm praying that you don't do that, and I'm praying that God lets us see him. God lets us see him this morning. I think that's a worthy endeavor for our time together. So let's pray that God would do that. Father in heaven, we love you. God, thank you for the moment that you've just given us already. I just thank you for these parents who take this faithful step, uh, God, just to entrust what matters most to them, their children and their family, to you. God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have as a church to come alongside these families and in a faithful way uh, be dedicated to seeing these children walk uh, in your ways and have life with you, Jesus. Father, right now, as we open your word, I, I claim and I believe uh, what it says about it, that it's living and that it's active. And so, God, I am asking right now for your word to be living and active in our midst and in this moment. God, your, your word uh, reflects back to us who we are and who you are. God, your word rightly divides and shows us the places in our life where we're clinging to things that don't lead to more life. 
Uh, and God, that, that, that does not depend on me. It not, doesn't depend on any skill I have as a communicator. It doesn't depend on anything that I can do. We need your power in this moment. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you move with freedom? Would you bring conviction where it's needed? Would you lead us by your kindness to repentance where it's needed? Would you bring comfort and encouragement where it's needed? God, would we not just be hearers of your word, but doers? Jesus, this is not about us. It's about you and your fame and your purposes in the world. So God, I pray that this time helps us to take a next step in that. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray, amen. If you were to look at the convictions that Redemption Church holds, you can find this on our website, particularly around this topic. Uh, this is what it says. I want to read this to you just so you know where we as a church stand on this. It says this, God's prioritization of the poor and overlooked is the theme on display throughout the biblical story. That's what we're going to kind of see this morning. In the Exodus, God's foundational act of salvation, he saves an enslaved people from the sins of their oppressors. In the law, he repeatedly calls his people to pay significant attention, both personally and politically, to what theologians have called the quartet of the vulnerable, which is widows, orphans, sojourners, like refugees, and the poor. In the prophets, he gives warning and rebuke to those who've oppressed the vulnerable or turned a blind eye to the plight of those in need. In the wisdom literature, he gives insight regarding the complicated nature of both wealth and poverty. In the epistles, he repeatedly calls his church to care for the last, the least, and the lost. In the gospels, so in the story of Jesus, to be in proximity to Jesus, to be close to Jesus, was to be in proximity to the poor and powerless. In his public ministry, he heals the sick, cares for the poor, feeds the hungry, and ministers to the suffering. So Basically, an overview of every place that you see in the scripture of God's heart and care for the poor. Jesus regularly shares meals and spends time with those considered outcasts rather than clamor for fame or influence. With those in seats of power, the Savior is content in the company of fishermen and tax collectors, servants and widows. Jesus does not overlook the people whom society overlooks. There are no God-forsaken people or places. And for this reason, among others... Jesus equates kindness to the poor and overlooked with kindness to him. So let's get just a little bit of clarity as we're talking about this topic this morning. Uh, and, and when we were talking about the poor and vulnerable, those on the, on the margin. So I mentioned in that writing there that theologians will identify the, the quartet of the poor from the Bible. So this is uh, widows, orphans, sojourners. So think refugees, foreigners, and the poor. It, it's a people who where their every move in life is, is crisis, and, it, and, it's, and it's unavoidable. When the scripture is talking about the poor, it's primarily speaking to someone who has low economic status due to calamity or some other form of oppression. And, and it's not just that being poor means that you have less money. It, it, it means that you live in this continual state of crisis. Like you, you have no options. Uh, Kirsten Trano, who oversees foster care, kinship, and adoption for all of Redemption Church, so all of our initiatives, all of our work that we're engaged in with that church, she was talking to me and she said, you know, if, um, if my daughter lost both of her parents, uh, there's like a, a net or like a safety kind of net mechanism that's, that's below her that would catch her. So there's additional family 
There's a church family that we're engaged in. And if you go layers and layers down, there's government systems that are set up that would be able to care for and to help her. But the truly poor, truly vulnerable, you have far less options. It's just crisis when the bottom falls out. And we have to understand that as Jesus teaches about the poor and the vulnerable, he's teaching from a context, and that context that he's teaching from is primarily the Old Testament. It's the only Bible, it's the only scriptures that he would have, uh, that, they, that they would have. And he's working from passages uh, like Deuteronomy 10, 18, which says this, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8. If anyone is poor among you, fellow Israelites, in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hardened or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Deuteronomy 15, 11 says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. So right there, you open up your Bible, page after page in the law, it gives a consistent command. The word of God says when people around you have less, as the people of God, you are commanded to be generous on their behalf, specifically as it relates to food, clothing, and shelter. And God just doesn't give this as a command. He actually locates this in his heart. He's giving his heart to his people, meaning he's saying, this is what I care about. And if you're going to be my people, this is what you need to care about. So as you progress through the story of God's people, uh, prophets rise up. Prophets are kind of like the mouthpiece of God, uh, and they confront the ways in which God's people are not obeying the law, are not obeying the words of God, specifically in relation to two people. So if you read through the prophets, there's two consistent themes that the prophets are always bringing up to the people. First um, is idolatry, which would be the worship of the gods of the people around them. Essentially, God is saying, you look more like the culture surrounding you you're influenced more by the culture surrounding you than, I, than you are by your relationship with me, so idolatry. And then secondly, how they care for the poor and the vulnerable. Over and over again, if you just read through the prophets, the rebuke is God's people, how they don't care for the poor, they don't care for the immigrant, they don't care for the widow among them or around them. I mean, if you look just at the book of Amos alone, he says in, ver- in chapter two, verse seven, the rich trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. In chapter six, he sees how the lifestyle of the rich was built on the oppression of the poor. In chapter five, how the poor had no hope in the courts of the law because the rich had all bribed the judges. And then you move into the life that God lives. So God, who's the author of the story, the author of the story has a very unique position and power. He can enter into the story in any place, in any way, in any time that he wants to. And God, the author of the story, freely chose to enter his own story as a poor Jewish refugee during a genocide at the height of Roman occupation. He, truly, he freely chooses for his own life poverty. God came as the poor. And as he grows up in that world, if you just look at the life of Jesus, he keeps company with tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers, 
not the cat, lepers, the most detested people of the day. Lepers in particular had it really bad in the first century. They have this incurable, highly contagious, fatal disease that affects the outside of their body, so they can't even hide it. And they're also living in a time in history and a time in culture that believed that this terminal disease that God had, that had been put on them was, was God's judgment because, uh, 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 that was handed down to them because of their sin. So lepers, uh, not only are they cut off from society because of the disease, they're they're cut off from the temple because the belief was that the only way that God would make you like that is because you did something so immoral, so sinful that he had to deal with you with that awful punishment. So the the suffering of the leper in particular is not just physical, it's not just uh, uh, emotional, it's social and it's also spiritual. They're, they're, They're forced to live in separate colonies and they would never be able to be engaged in, 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 in human touch. They were never physically touched. And so when, if you look at Jesus, he's very intentional, every place he goes, about going to these colonies and putting his hands on these people. The untouchable, Jesus goes. And, 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 and he takes the presence of God. This is, I thought this was fantastic. Everywhere Jesus goes, he takes the presence of God to those who were told they are forever disqualified from the presence of God. And he physically touches them. People haven't been touching years. He doesn't treat the leper like a problem to be solved, but as a person who's to be loved and valued and cherished. And so when Jesus shows up, if you just look at his life, again, he's ministering to the poor, he's ministering to the vulnerable, the people who've been cut off, and then he teaches directly at this. It's so important to him that Jesus takes a moment and he preaches directly towards this. He says this in Matthew chapter 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Okay, what is Jesus talking about? What is this moment he's talking about here? He's talking about the final judgment. So get the tension, get the drama. This is really serious what Jesus is talking about here. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? They're saying, you're God. You've never been sick. You've never been in prison. What are you even talking about? Verse 40, then the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Something very significant happens right there. God identifies himself with the poor. So much so, he says, when you care for the poor, you're actually caring for me. 
Verse 40, 41, then, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, if this was the only Bible that you had, like this was the only like scrap of scriptures that you have, you're going to form a certain kind of faith in Jesus. And the kind of faith that you would form would be, okay, well, if we care for the poor, we're gonna be saved. And if we don't, we're going to be in big trouble. And you would live your life just trying to make sure that you did enough because you would think, if I do enough, if I help enough poor people, I'll do enough to be saved. The great news is that Matthew 25 is not the only part of the Bible that we have. But I got to pull over for a second because passages like this do make certain people anxious because the totality of the Bible tells us that we are only rescued and saved by grace. Okay, so pay real close attention to this next part for me. I'm gonna try to speak super clearly. I'm gonna go slow down a little bit. So if you've dozed off, wake up or real quick, just catch this and you can go back to sleep. Welcome. So <laughs> the totality of the Bible teaches us we are only rescued and saved by grace, which is unearned, undeserved favor of God. Okay, so listen closely. Because we are a church that talks about caring for the poor and vulnerable and actually cares about the poor and vulnerable, and because I am a pastor who deeply cares about this and preaches on this, there are some will say, that must mean that you believe in a Jesus plus gospel. That's, that's a way of thinking that people might, might have. Like, like it's Jesus plus your good deeds. That's how you're saved. That's, that's the, how people will arrive to that. I want to say this super clear. That is not the gospel that we believe. Nor is it what we preach. Capish? The only way that you have relationship with God is because God loves you and he initiates, activates, and sustains that relationship. The story of the Bible is that Jesus Christ came, the Son of God, and he lived the life that you and I could not live, and he suffered the death that you and I should have suffered and died. He suffered and died on our behalf. He took the punishment for us on himself he stood in our place. He died and he rose again so that you have a promise that if you trust in him and him alone and what he alone has done for you, you are rescued by God's supplied grace through God's supplied faith from an eternity separated from God to a resurrection and eternity in heaven with God. That is the faith that we preach and that is the faith that we hold to full stop. Got it? Okay. 
So what's happening here in Matthew 25 and what we see in other places in the New Testament is the assumption that if you have been rescued by grace, if you know that God has saved you, and if you know that nothing that you have is your own, your life is not your own, that to be saved by grace means that a sign of salvation is that you care for the poor. A sign or a symptom of being rescued by grace is that you are generous to and care for those who are vulnerable and in need. Because God, who had everything, cared for you in a way that you could not care for yourself in crisis and chaos. Therefore, you, in turn, care for those who can't care for themselves in their own crisis and chaos because of what God has given you. Make sense? Some of you are like, man, you are really reading into a lot of Matthew 25. Well, the good news is we got more Bible, so hold on. 1 John 3, 1 John chapter 3. This is an amazing passage. It's a great passage, right? Because it's, it's a passage that calls us to call people to Christ. So one of the critiques when you start talking about stuff like this is that you'll get people who are like, say, listen, you know, what people really need is the gospel without evangelism. Uh, I, we're just kind of dressing people up for hell. So just, just preach the gospel, to which I would say, amen, the gospel is the hope of the world. I would also tell you it's a lot tougher to hear the gospel on an empty stomach. The other thing that I would say is when I read my Bible, the passages in the New Testament that talk about our need for Jesus immediately attach that care to the poor. Look at 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. Amazing reality, amazing truth, beautiful scripture. Jesus laid his life down for us so that we can have life in him. It's the gospel. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. We should do the same for our brothers and sisters. Read on, verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, with actions and truth. John says, you know how I can see someone who's been captured by grace? They care for people who are in need. John's saying that's the natural next step. God's rescued me, therefore I care for others. One of the books of the Bible that does this over and over again is the book of James. The great reformer Martin Luther was wildly frustrated with the book of James. He called it the the book of straw because it was so irritating. He tried to get it out of the canon, out of the collection of scriptures. In fact, when he put his own kind of canon together, he put James at the very end, hoping that nobody would get there and they wouldn't read it. But James, who's the brother of Jesus, is very clear about this. He talks about a faith that Jesus exhibited. It's all over James. Listen to what he says, James chapter one. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James two says this. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen to what he says here. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? James 2, 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you 
If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God, that's good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James is saying, you think you got great theology, but you don't do anything for the poor? Here's a thought for you. Demons understand things about God, and they're demons. You can see why Martin Luther wanted this book out of there. He kind of summarizes it in James 2.13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, which is a scary verse. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercy he's talking about there specifically is care for the poor and the vulnerable. And you'd be like, James, where are you getting all this stuff? And he's like, well, I got it from my brother, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, there's this moment where Jesus is doing what he always does. He's sitting and eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinful people, essentially. And the Pharisees gather around and they're like, if this guy really knew who he was sitting with, he wouldn't be with them at all. Or if he was an actual legit, legit teacher. And they, uh, they call him teacher kind of like in quotations. They're kind of mocking him. And Jesus, this is a really savage moment, actually. He turns to them, and he's like, oh, okay, you're mocking me for being a teacher. Why don't you go and learn this? Learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting from their own playbook. He, he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, which would have been one of the scriptures that they would have committed to, to memory. And so they would make the connection immediately. In that context, when Jesus says that, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy. Uh, he, he's saying, sacrifice, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifice would mean a strict observance of a religious ritual. And Jesus is saying, mercy is a better way of getting to obedience rather than obsessing over all the religious rituals. In other words, if you want to know God, love the people that you've kicked out of the temple rather than constantly running in circles in the temple. If it's God you're after, show mercy because that's who God is and that's what he's into. What Jesus is saying here is that mercy is not an optional expression for the people of God. You might say, well, you know, I'm not, I don't wired that way. I don't lean that way. You know, there's some people, like, they're really, like, into mercy. So, like, that's kind of them. No, God is saying, no, listen, it's not just reserved for certain people. If you are a follower of, of Jesus, mercy is a priority because it's a priority to Jesus. The prophet Isaiah 58, listen to what God says through him, Isaiah 58, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? When he's talking about fasting there, it's shorthand for a, a life fully surrendered to God. Earlier in Isaiah 58, the people are complaining about a life with God like God hasn't held up their end of the bargain. They're like, we're, in, we're doing this fasting, meaning like we've committed our personal life to you and things aren't any better. You know, it doesn't seem like, God, you're holding up your end. 
And what Isaiah is saying, what God's saying through the prophet Isaiah to the people is that, like, look, you've compartmentalized spirituality to your inward being, but you're not letting it touch your outward lives. And when, when Isaiah gives this to the people, it, he's not giving them like a hypothetical list. There are specific instructions based on the society they, that they live in. So when they would hear this, when they would hear the scripture, they would hear this as, this is for us in this time with these needs and with the neighbors that we have now. That's what they would hear when they hear that. So the natural question for us, church, is what is the fast that God desires out of us here? 2021, Gilbert, Arizona. In Arizona, where there's over 19,000 kids in foster care system without forever families, what's the fast that God has for us? What's the fast that God has for a church in Maricopa County that has over 7,500 people experiencing homelessness? What's the fast for a church that God sends to rural Alaska where there are the highest rates of child abuse per capita anywhere else in our country and adolescent suicide rates are three times higher than the national average? What's the fast for a church where God has us with relationships and people like in places like Ethiopia and Haiti where we have friends and partners, some of the poorest planets on, on earth, some of the poorest countries on planet earth where political instability and rampant violence against women and children, drought, severe food insecurity just ravage these countries and these people. What's the kind of fast that God desires for us, Redemption Church? We, we live in a world... That's waiting for the kingdom of God to be realized. They wouldn't say it that way. They don't, they don't know it. They couldn't articulate it like that. And we are a people who pray, God, would your kingdom come on earth as, as it is in heaven? Would your kingdom come in Arizona? Would your kingdom come in Alaska? Would your kingdom come in Haiti as it is in heaven? And I just wonder if sometimes God's not saying, I hear your prayer and I have the same desire that my kingdom would come in those places, which is exactly why I've placed you there. To be in the gap between what the world needs and what I want to bring. You're my kingdom bringing people. But we have to be able to see the poor and the vulnerable the way that Jesus does. We have to be able to at least see them. One last story. Real quick, Luke chapter 16, uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of an odd story that Jesus tells. He tells the story um, of a rich man and Lazarus, and uh, Lazarus is a leper who lives at the gate, so basically kind of lives at like the front door of this rich man's house. And the scripture says that Lazarus eats from the scraps of the rich man's table, so they have somewhat of a relationship there. Um, and uh, they, they both die, and Lazarus goes to heaven or to paradise, and the, the rich man goes to hell. And uh, when Jesus is telling the story, the, the rich man can see Lazarus, even though there's a great chasm, and so he can't get to him. And the rich man is being tormented, and so he calls out to Lazarus. Uh, he calls out to Abraham at the gates of heaven. This is what he says. He says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. This is Luke 16, if you want to write down the address. For I have five brothers, and let him warn them, warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
No, Father Abraham, the rich man said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. End scene. It's very unsettling. It's like an indie film where you're like, I know I'm supposed to get it, but I don't really get how that ended. The rich man in this story, at first glance, you might just think, well, you know, he's condemned because he's rich. But that's not really it at all. The rich man's not condemned because he lacked mercy. So, so this poor leper lives at the gate of his residence. So like you have to think all the influential people who would come to visit the rich man, he's having dinner parties. He has all these people who would be very influential in society. They have to walk by Lazarus and the rich man doesn't kick him out. He lets him be there. So there's like a kind of social stigma. There's kind of an, an that the rich man would have because he's letting Lazarus be close and he does feed him. You know, I don't know how many of you have a terminally ill homeless man living on your front yard that you feed every day. So he's not totally without mercy. But if we zoom out a little bit, there's something else that Jesus is trying to drive across with this, with this story. So if you, if you listen, the only person that Jesus names, with the exception of Abraham in this story, in this fictional story, is the leper. And his name is Lazarus. Lazarus is the name of Jesus' best friend. When Lazarus dies, Jesus goes to his tomb, and the scripture says he weeps. And Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but his, heart is, his heart's broken. Lazarus is one of his closest friends. He's closer to him than even his, his own brothers. And if you catch the, the request that the rich man has, he says, send Lazarus to my five brothers. So even when it's all said and done and the rich man's being tormented, his, only, his concern is only for his people, his siblings, not for the man that he's now trying to use as a messenger. One theologian writes about this and he says, the rich man is condemned because he thought he only had five brothers when God had actually given him six. It's not an issue of mercy because he helps Lazarus. It's an issue of motive. It's his heart. Because he doesn't see Lazarus as family. He doesn't embrace him as a brother. He did not welcome him as an equal. He saw him as a project or a problem to solve, not a person of value or worth to be loved. And listen, we get it. Because an act of mercy at arm's length is a lot easier than inviting it into your home. I mean, a couple weeks ago, a month ago, I said, church, the people of Haiti are suffering. There's a, a terrible earthquake, and plus now there's a hurricane on their doorstep, and you were so incredibly generous. And we're able to give over $25,000 to help this people. You were so amazing, so generous. I'm so thankful for that. But if I came up here the next week and said, hey, uh, turns out everybody has to take a Haitian into their home now. That's a lot tougher ask. The Pharisees were never offended that Jesus would go and do kind things to destitute and vulnerable people. They were offended that he would sit and eat with them as equals at the table. They were offended that he treated them like they were family. Isaiah says in chapter 58, don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. 
we can rally around in a call to serve the vulnerable and the poor, which is great. But God's call to us, God's heart that he wants us to have is for us to see them as family. So when we see the most vulnerable in our society, the unborn, the mother in crisis, the orphan, the refugee, the poor, the homeless, the marginalized, the sick, the addicted, the weak, the hurting, the mentally ill, and all of those whose story is deemed too messy and too untouchable by society, God's saying, that is your family. We should see brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. With this, we're close. In the early church, um, there were two essential positions for leadership. There was a pastor who taught and spoke, even in house churches, and then there was a deacon. This was kind of like a, like a bouncer um, who sat by the, the door to make sure that everything was okay, and, and that's really kind of all you needed to start a church in the third century. And if you were to read early church writings about the order of worship, there were instructions on how these church kind of gatherings were supposed to go down. Um, There's even instructions for what to do when people show up late to church, So, which is apparently like an ancient issue with Christians. Um, So you're in good company. And it says, if someone were to show up late while the pastor has already begun speaking and they are wealthy, then that person should just kind of stand in the back and kind of post up back there and don't disturb anything. But the instructions say, if they are poor, then the deacon who's sitting by the door should personally escort them down the center aisle to a place of honor that's been reserved for the poor at the very front of the room. And if the pastor is speaking and notices, oh, hey, the deacon hasn't picked up on that person, the pastor should stop and formally welcome that poor person to the front, to the place of honor, to the seat. And if that seat's already taken, then what the pastor should do is recognize them and call them forward and give them his own seat to sit in, and then the pastor would stand the rest of the time. So in the church, in the DNA of the church, of the earliest church, was mercy. Whoever is considered last out there is to be first in here. You see, the world wants the kingdom of God. The question is, are they going to find it in the church? The church outside desperately wants the things that the church, the world outside desperately wants the thing that the church has always been about. So love and justice and peace and hope and freedom. The world wants the kingdom. They don't realize that it is the king that makes all those things truly possible, which is why we always preach Jesus. But our world is longing for what they see in Isaiah 58. And I think they don't always see it in the church. Now listen, I love you. And so I don't want you to hear all of this as just a rebuke to struggle against or to fight against because what God presents to his people in Isaiah 58 is actually a gracious invitation for us to humbly walk in. If you look at Isaiah chapter 58, the promises take up twice as much space as the diagnosis. Listen what God is saying. If you would do what he calls you to, then your light will break forth like dawn and your healing will quickly appear. That sounds like an amazing thing for us. And then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help. And he'll say, here am I. 
If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame. Church, what God's saying to us, if you will do this, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. The truth is, if we don't walk in this, we are the ones who are missing out. We're missing out on knowing God in a more intimate and beautiful way. Um, we do have a couple things. So if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, what do I do? How do I get in, engaged? Again, the whole message is not necessarily to answer that question, but we as a church do have a few things that are going on. So just to kind of tell you, so Help One Now is an organization that we partner with globally. Tenalian Bible Camp, we have in Alaska, we've mentioned that. We're, we're, we have trips that we will do uh, a few times a year. Um, we have an Advent offering that comes up towards the end of the year where 100% of those funds go to that. Um, our church, not just Redemption Gilbert, but all of Redemption Church uh, is engaged in the foster and adoption crisis in our state. Miranda Profiter um, is the contact here at Redemption Gilbert on October 28th from 6.30 to 8.30 at night here at Redemption Gilbert. There's a orientation called Finding Your Place in Foster Care. So if you're interested in, in that or you just wanna say, I just wanna know more about what our church is doing or I wanna know more how I can support families that are working towards this, that's a great, great place for you to go. Uh, we have M25 where we are working with uh, Willis Junior High and Serene Elementary, Title I schools. And then we have a new initiative that we're actually launching uh, today. Uh, there's a, a video I wanna show you in a little bit that's gonna explain it. I'm really excited about that. And in fact, let's just turn our eyes to the screen and you can see uh, what that is. <laughs> <laughs> 